Good evening, listeners. It is December 2nd tonight. You are tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis FM. It is currently just after 7 p.m. and it's Sunday evening, so that means it's time for another round of Inspiration Dissemination. I am Scott Classic. And I'm Kristen Finch. At Oregon State University, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we, see, we feature the research and personal stories of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things happening at Oregon State, Check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out more about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. We also have a podcast if you're into that sort of thing. It's available on iTunes if you search for Inspiration Dissemination and look for the orange light bulb logo. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions that we express on this show are those of us and our guests, and not necessarily represented by Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Daniel Watkins from the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences. So he specializes in atmospheric science, looking at interactions between sea ice and temperature using outputs from a variety of sources, uh, including climate models. Um, Welcome, Daniel. Hello. And um, so we're interested in, uh, I guess, sea ice is sort of where this thing kicks off. Um, Can you explain to us um, in the Arctic, how, uh, why is sea ice so important and why is it at the root of so many things? The Arctic is fundamentally different than most places on Earth, including the Antarctic. Uh, The Arctic is surrounded by land and is completely covered in ice during the winter, which makes it kind of like a continental landmass. During the summer, a lot of that ice melts and there's open water. And this cycle of ice advance and retreat is a major part of the life of animals and people that live in the area. For example, um, during the summer, the polar bears are just living off of fat reserves. And as the ice starts to freeze up, they'll pace along the edge of the um, ocean, eagerly anticipating the first ice forming. And then soon as any ice forms, they're off looking for seals and anything else that they can find. Um, Similarly, for the indigenous communities there, the land masses are really rocky and there's lots of rivers and it makes travel really hard until the ice frees up and then it's like a highway forms. And in some of the communities, the native word for November means the month where news happens because that's when oh, they're first able to easily get to the even the neighboring communities. Okay. And so I, I would imagine that changes in sea ice when it starts to form during the year or how stable it is can really affect these communities as well as maybe the you know uh, mammals that use this, uh, besides humans, that use this uh, uh, ecosystem. Yes. Both of those uh, factors are really important. The time that the ice freezes up uh, has been going further and further into the year where it used to freeze up in October. Some places it's been freezing in December. That means a full extra month that the animals have to wait until they can go hunting again. It's an extra month before people can go and do the um, hunting for marine mammals that they typically would do. Um, My work is more on the physics side, but we definitely keep all of these applications in mind because really it's 
just the physics is just one part of this earth system and the fact that people and animals are relying on certain climate states is one of the things that makes it so important. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that um, sea ice is sort of like a modulator for uh, the release of heat uh, between the ocean and the atmosphere. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. So the, the sea ice acts as sort of a blanket for the ocean, which is kind of weird because we think of ice as something that makes things colder. <laughs> but if you have in your mind an igloo as a place where a wall of snow keeps the inside warm, the layer of ice on top of the ocean keeps heat in the ocean from transferring into the air. And it's important to keep in mind that the air in the Arctic is much, much colder than the water. The water is limited by the freezing point, which for seawater is about minus four Celsius, whereas the air can be going minus 40, minus 50 degrees or more. So there's a huge difference in temperature. And when a crack opens up in the ice, which frequently happens and is fairly dramatic, clouds of um, it looks like steam coming out of the ocean will occur. These And these plumes can go up miles into the atmosphere. Oh, whoa, I didn't know it was that big. Yeah, it's massive. Wow. So it's uh, it's actually the, the um, water vapor from the ocean that is so cold that is then made visible by the cold, or that it's so warm, it's made visible by the cold surrounding atmosphere. Right, it's the, the difference in temperatures that matters there. And so I guess this uh, sort of feedback loop, I guess, if you're observing less and less sea ice in the Arctic each year, um, that would be expected to transfer more heat from the ocean to the atmosphere over like, a long term, right? Right. So this is actually one of the earliest predictions in climate science. If you go all the way back to the late 1800s with Svante Arrhenius, he published some papers speculating about what would happen if you added a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. And although the reasons that he got to the answer he did aren't exactly right, he, he predicted that there would be about a three or four degree increase in temperature over most of the planet. And also thinking about the way that sea ice plays a role in the system, he figured that the Arctic would warm up faster than the rest of the world. This is something that has actually played out just in the last two decades or so. What happens is that the sea ice modulates two different things. So first, it keeps heat from escaping from the ocean into the atmosphere. The second thing is during the summer, the sea ice reflects a lot of the heat that's coming in from the sun. If you look down from an airplane or from a satellite photo, the ice is bright white and the ocean water is very dark. If you've ever gone out in very dark clothing in the middle of summer, you know that dark materials absorb heat much more than bright colored materials. So as sea ice recedes, the open water is exposed and heat is absorbed from the sun. That heat makes it so that the ocean has to cool more during the fall before sea ice can form. And so if you increase the temperature of the atmosphere, that's going to melt a little bit of the ice. That's going to expose more water to sunlight. That's going to allow the water to warm further and prevent ice from forming as early the next year. And so it's a self-propagating vicious cycle. And so if a lot of the water is not tied up into into ice at these time in the 
say in the winter, if there is not as much ice, then this can cause a lot of different problems also, not just for coastal communities, but for the stability kind of of the coastline. That's right. So one of the things that is that makes Arctic research so important right now is that any kind of weather prediction we have or wave prediction we have is based on what we have seen already. That's the only way we can really do it. We can make predictions of what will happen, but those will be guesses. So like our weather forecasts are based on people carefully observing the weather, formulating a theory, and then testing out that theory. And as we've gone on, we've gotten better and better at predicting the forecast of weather. Here in Oregon, we have an improving and sometimes very good forecasts of ocean wave conditions. In the Arctic, with the ice forming later in the year, we're having storms forming waves in times where there weren't any waves impacting the coastline at all in the past. So if you go from having the ice form in November to having it form in December, you have this whole extra month of waves crashing into the coast that can make it so that the coastline recedes and um, permafrost areas start to melt and collapse into the water. I think you also kind of hit on another point that um, I hadn't realized until um, you know, we met uh, last week, and that was sort of that, you know, say, looking at these systems out here in Oregon, you know, we've got lots of people, there's lots of um, observations that can be made because of that. And uh, I guess the Arctic is a bit different system in that case, just because fewer people live there. Is that right? So that's right. So with observations, we often have to make a decision between very detailed observation of one spot in particular. Like if we build a big facility with lots of temperature and radar and uh, sensors for precipitation, that can give us a really good picture of one spot. But if we want to know how, say, a weather system is moving, we need to be able to look at a broader area. So somebody trying to forecast on the East Coast has evidence from all of these great surface stations all the way across the U.S. to see how a storm has been developing. And they'd say, okay, it's been moving this way and changing this way, so it's probably going to land here. Whereas in the West Coast, it's a little bit harder. We have satellites, but we don't have cities in the middle of the ocean. And so uh, the weather forecasts don't tend to be quite as good. In the Arctic, we have lots of observations of specific points. So Barrow, Alaska uh, has a great array of sensors and the indigenous communities have a lot of knowledge about how the ice forms and the different patterns the ice can make, but only in the places where they live. So we have a great understanding of ice in some of these coastal inhabited areas, but nobody lives in the middle of the Arctic. And so this huge area in the center going from north of Greenland all the way across to Russia, we have just small records of when people went out and set up a camp and took measurements for a year or so. Um, and then we have whatever we can pick up from flying an airplane across it or from satellite imagery. And so how do those observations that are available, and uh, please do also, uh, when you answer this question, list some of the observations that you use, but how do the observations that you have available play into your work for here at Oregon State? And what kind of, uh, what, what does your research entail in the, in the day-to-day? Sure. So when you're trying to study something in the Arctic, you have a lot of different approaches available. It's 
there's a lot of different things that we use and yet we can still say that it's sparsely observed because there's lots of gaps. So we can start from the very granular. There's buoys attached to ice that keep track of where the ice is moving and how thick the ice is and the temperature at the surface and just below the ice. We have long running weather stations in the Arctic countries where they'll use weather balloons that get launched once or twice every day. They have upward facing radar and LIDAR that can keep track of where clouds are. And they have sensors for picking up wind speed and uh, relative humidity and temperature. So we have uh, weather stations, we have buoys, and then to try to pick up stuff in the middle of the Arctic, we have ice camps, which are like mini versions of weather stations that are temporary. Um, we'll take icebreakers and sail them into the ice, let it freeze solid and sit there for a while um, <laughs> and take measurements from that mobile laboratory. And then there's uh, airplane flights where they'll use a variety of tools. There's something called a drop sonde, which is like a little radio powered science device that they'll drop out of the back of an airplane and it'll measure things on the way down. It's kind of the opposite of a weather balloon. <laughs> um, and then they also have uh, cameras that will pick up different wavelengths. And with light, we're fam typically familiar with the idea that there's different colors of light. Each color of light corresponds to a different set of wavelengths, how fast the little particle of light that you can never actually look at directly is wiggling back and forth. Uh, <coughs> but we have also infrared and ultraviolet spectrum that go um, quite a ways in either direction. And this becomes really useful in the Arctic. So the Arctic is characterized by the fact that there's a part of the year where there's no light at all coming from the sun. So if you're just trying to take a picture with this typical camera, it's just going to come up black for most of the year. But if you have a camera that can look at infrared, you can see areas where it's warmer or colder. So that lets you see how much the ice is cracking or how thin the ice is in some cases. And it can tell you whether there's clouds or not. If you look in the microwave spectrum, then you can tell the difference between open water and ice, even if they're the same temperature. That's just because they have like a different reflective signature, is it? Right. Each kind of material, the reason that materials look like they have colors is that they'll receive light and then reflect it in a different way. Hmm. And sea ice is no different, even though it's white uh, to in the visible spectrum snow and ice and old ice all can look different in the microwave spectrum. Mm -hmm. And some of the earliest scientific satellites were equipped with a microwave imager. And so we have very long records, relatively speaking, about 40 years worth of records about uh, sea ice extent. And then we try to supplement that with some of the other tools, like there's satellites with a little laser on board that will pick up the all of the little bumps on the surface to try to get a picture of the thickness and topography of the ice. And we try to combine those to get a picture of how much ice is there and where is it. And so then so all those play into your model. That Yeah. So we have these point measurements and satellite measurements and there's gaps in between and weather forecasters and climate researchers will use a variety of tools to try to figure out what's going on in between the 
observations. One of the most important tools for this is called a reanalysis model, which is you take a weather forecast model and you run it a few times. Each time it's going to be a little bit different because weather is inherently chaotic. And then using a process called data assimilation, you take a set of, say, sea surface temperatures and weather balloon outputs and other observations, and you find the weather forecast that fit those observations best. And since the model can be run on whatever grid your computer can handle, you have information in between that's a very good guess because it also lined up well with what we actually saw. So I'll use reanalysis models to try to get a picture of what's in between. And then we can look at hypothetical situations using a climate model where we can say how much carbon dioxide is going to be in the air at a certain time and we can change other parameters. And so we'll run a climate model to test out things that are as close to real physics as we can do, but let us see how the Earth system might evolve. So this seems like it's a way of basically, in in a sense, testing how good um, our modeled predictions can be, or at least at uh, maybe like a finer scale that y- you said that like climate models are not really very good at predicting, say, the temperature at a particular location within the Arctic. Right. So when you're trying to model the Earth system, you always have to leave out some details because you think about how many atoms there are in the entire planet. We can't model each of those. Mm-hmm. So maybe step up another scale and say, let's try to model every single grain of sand. Well, that might not give us any more information than if we just said the beach for this next hundred miles is about light yellow. <laughs> um, so the the climate modeler has to try to pick which things are going to be helpful or needed and get the minimum amount of detail they can because then you can run it a little further. So it's like trying to adjust the, the I guess, the most the thing that we'd be most familiar with with compression is pictures because we can take pictures with a camera at like 14 megapixels and it's a pretty big file, but we might only want to look at it on our phone. And so we'd save it at a smaller size and that smaller size gave us all the information we need. And if we have that picture that has all the information we're looking for, we can then have a thousand pictures of that size where we would just have one picture of a big size. So the climate model tries to scale down the detail so that we can run it for a very long time. At a high resolution, maybe we'd be able to do like two days and it would take us a month to run. But at a lower resolution, we could take that month and run out 1,000 years of the climate cycle. Because you're, you're trying to predict these long-term trends or trying to, to model what has happened in the past, maybe so that you can predict what's going on in the future. And you're not really necessarily interested in what's happening today or this year. Yeah, it, it's kind of hard to say directly on that because... On the one hand, it's the details that we really want to be able to say. Like if we're trying to build roads in the north coast of Alaska, if we're trying to figure out where to put a farm, we want to know at a really high level of detail how much rain there's going to be in the future or where the coastline's going to be in the future. And that's a really hard problem that a lot of people are working on. One of the steps to doing that uses the lower resolution climate model where we might only be able to say one temperature value for a hundred mile square. 
And that's still very helpful when we think about the entire planet, because you've got, say, 3,000 of those squares in a row going around the equator. You can still see big pictures of, say, Alaska's coast will be rising in temperature by a few degrees over this time period. You wouldn't be able to say this specific bay is changing temperatures, but we have to start somewhere. And so we start by trying to predict the broad trend over an area. And then the next step is say, okay, given that trend, what can we say about what's inside that area? Right. Yeah. So the scale that you're looking at, I guess, with uh, you're, you're combining the um, the buoys, the the satellite imagery, um, all that data. It's, it's sort of more like a regional scale, I guess. Yeah. So I'll try to answer questions from different scales. So I'll start out looking at what's going on at the size of the Arctic, and in the specific example that I tend to work with most, which is looking at the structure of temperature in the atmosphere, I might say it looks like over ice in the middle of the Arctic, our temperature is overly stable. There's too cold of temperatures near the surface and too warm of temperatures at altitude. And that's different than how the atmosphere normally is, like when you think of it, right? It's an exaggeration of what the temperature is normally like. So in... Um, what Scott's getting at is the idea of a temperature inversion, which is something that we do see in a lot of the world, especially at night, where the surface will cool off more than the air higher up. The standard temperature profile during the day is going to decrease in temperature as you go up, which is why you can have snow at the top of mountains in the middle of summer. So the fact that air decreases in temperature as you go up is just based on the ideal gas law, essentially, that air will cool as it expands. If the surface cools off more than the air above, though, uh, then you get cold air underneath, and that cold air wants to stay still. And it can trap heat or pollutants. If you ever notice a sulfur smell in the air around Corvallis, that's usually because a temperature inversion developed and trapped pollution from nearby like wood processing plants. Oh, really? Um, so it's something that happens here, but it's in the Arctic, it's, like many other things, greatly exaggerated. So in the Arctic, during the winter, you'll have an inversion over 90% of the time. And this is just because the surface is cooling off to space and there's no sunlight during the winter to warm it up. So there's nothing to stop that inverted cooling progression. So um, in my research, I'll start at that larger scale and say it looks like we have a, a temperature inversion over the Arctic, which we're supposed to have. But the temperature inversion is too strong, like it decreases by, say, 20 degrees instead of by 10 degrees. And so the next thing that I'll do is I'll go up a step in resolution and say, go from the climate model that has 100 mile squares and then go to a reanalysis model, which has, if I remember right, something like 15 or 20 mile squares. And then from there, if the reanalysis is looking like it's capturing realistic detail, which it usually does a pretty good job at then I might be able to answer any questions that I had about the climate model just by comparing it to the reanalysis. Um, if there's something that I find is lacking in both, then I'll go up another scale and look at, say, one weather station and look at what the weather balloons have detected and try to think about what processes are important for the temperature structure there and then work back up saying, okay, I identified these processes as being important, say, cooling during the winter or warm air blowing over cold ground, things like that. 
And then I'll work back up toward the model saying, are these processes included in this model? Or is there something that should be upgraded? So that's essentially um, a way of kind of testing whether or not that, that, you know, full Arctic model can be, uh, how, how well does it compare if when you look in sort of finer detail and maybe if it doesn't compare very well, then you know that the model's not capturing enough and that we need more observatories or more data. We need to understand other different regions within the Arctic to be able to um, capture temperature and how that's going to change over time. Yeah, exactly. So we're trying to find out which things are represented well in the model because those are the things that we could then pass on to, say, a regional climate modeler saying, okay, we're really confident about the temperature increase over this time period. And so work with that. Um, if you talk to modeler, model developers, there'll be aspects of the model that they'll readily admit aren't right. So in the community earth system model, which I use, they know already that the ice in the model is too thick in particular regions. So if you point out, hey, look, the temperature is too low over here. And it's like, yeah, we have too much ice piling up there. We're trying to fix that part. But over, say, the Great Plains, they might have gotten something like exactly right. If you are just tuning in, we are um, talking with Daniel Watkins. He is a PhD student in the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Science. This is Inspiration Dissemination. Yeah, Daniel. So I'm wanting to know how you became interested in these in these climate models, or how you became interested in uh, physics. I guess to go way back. Sure. So I've always been interested in the outdoors and especially in far away inaccessible and beautiful places. So I'd look through like coffee table books with photographs of distant locations and look at old maps and read about explorers. So that was, that's been an interest for a long time. In uh, college, I was bouncing around among different ideas for majors as most people tend to do. And I'm in one of my math classes, I found some topics that I thought were really interesting and also learned that applied mathematics is sort of a toolbox of things that end up being useful in the sciences. And since an applied mathematician can keep dabbling in lots of different areas, I thought, hey, that's a way to not decide. <laughs> <laughs> so I finished a bachelor's in mathematics and then started a graduate degree in um, mathematics as well. And in the course of doing that, a graduate degree, I did an internship at uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory. And as part of that internship, as I had done in some earlier internships, I took the opportunity of being in next door to lots of impressive sounding scientists and went and um, knocked on their doors and emailed them and sat down, I guess in the opposite order. I emailed them and then knocked on their door <laughs> and then sat down with them to find out what they do so I could get an idea of what kind of jobs do people do here? What kind of background do you need? And I happened to meet the people that developed the sea ice model for the community earth system model. And looking into that, I thought that was a pretty cool area to be working in. And I found out the key information that a graduate degree in atmospheric science or oceanic science doesn't require you to ever have had an atmospheric science course as an undergraduate, which I most decidedly had not. And um, on the contrary, they expect you to have a background in math, physics, or engineering, and then you pick up the stuff you need to know about the climate system along the way. So you just happen to set yourself up with the math major in a good way there. 
Exactly. That you're able to, as you had expected, apply mathematics to uh, your greater interest in, um, in which was forming and developing into climate. That's right. And so, um, just curious, how uh, did you get a, um, how did Oregon State pop up on your radar? Well, the sea ice community is not very big. And so there's a small list of places where you could go and study Arctic climate in the first place. I asked for suggestions of people to talk to and emailed a bunch of places. Um, Jennifer Hutchings is one of the people that emailed back. Another person that I talked to a lot was Jen Kay at the University of Colorado. And both of those places sounded like a really good program. But more importantly, I had met through email somebody who seemed very interested in working with me, right. which was a big difference from the first time that I was trying to apply for graduate schools where I had no idea who was where. And I just kind of blindly sent my application. And since that was a sort of blind application, I didn't get in most places. Um, but so this time around, I knew people at specific universities and then talked to them and they said, this would be a good place for you to go. You should apply. Ah, yes. I think that makes a lot of difference. It really, really does. And so I applied to both of those schools and um, was accepted at both. But I also have the, the two body problem, which is um, not really a problem, but it does <laughs> um, make some decisions more complicated. And that's that my wife had just finished her degree in dietetics um, and human nutrition. And the next step for that is to do a dietetic internship. And Oregon State is one place that offers one. There is a few near uh, University of Colorado as well. And so she applied to a list of places in both of those areas. And then we just had to wait till April 12th, which was match day, which is where they just say whether you got in somewhere. Right. And that one place. <laughs> yeah, it's not stressful at all. Or, yeah, seriously. <laughs> so I, I had to um, make the school's very impatient with me and say, I know that I'm supposed to give you my answer by April 15th. I'll tell you on April 12th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she, so she got matched and then you, uh, picked your, or obviously like, uh, you kind of matched yourself to the school that's, that, that's right. yeah. that was, um, in the right location for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And so, uh, and, uh, you have, do you have plans for what happens after, after graduate school? I know that's a terrifying question, but where, yeah, where you want to go with the model? It's always an interesting question, and there's um, a lot of different places that I can go with it. So I've looked a lot at uh, jobs working with the national laboratories because I found those to be a pretty good environment to be able to work with uh, very capable people on really big projects. Um, I've also found that I really like talking to people about science. I'm uh, an OMSI science communications fellow. And um, so I'm trying and, uh, to find... will be soon uh, the newest host of Inspiration Dissemination. Right. Yeah, next gonna, week, starting debut. Next week, <laughs> sneak around to the other side of the desk here. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying to find a way that I can do science outreach as well as staying up to date with the science. So whether that's working at a laboratory in a more public facing role or um, working with say a museum or other like direct to science outreach place, and, we'll uh, see what I can find. The OMSI fellowship, it gives you the opportunity to kind of, I think, develop your own little science communication module about your specific subject area. That's Is right. that right? Yeah. So what, ty what type of um, uh, module have you created? 
So I was originally trying to make sort of a board game where you model sea ice, and it turns out there's just way too many factors to make it even somewhat <laughs> realistic. And kind I of like your model, right? Yes. <laughs> and so I didn't want to have to explain and do like differential equations with eight-year-olds. Yeah, that'd be tough. That yeah. wasn't going to work very well. So what I'm working on right now is uh, something that will illustrate the way that we work with imperfect data to try to get a picture of what's really going on. So the idea would be to have the same thing or picture in um, three different boxes and then have different impairments of your ability to observe it on each. And so then say on one of them, you could see the whole thing, but it'd be really blurry. Another one, you'd have like a couple holes where you could look in and see it really clearly in just a few spots. And then one where you could reach in and feel it. And then with those different senses combined, you try to reconstruct a picture of what's actually in the box. I think that's a great analogy for not only explaining, say, like modeling or say, like what exactly you're doing with your research, but just science in general. Like we right. don't know. We never have an exact like picture. Yeah. yeah. I, I explain like evolution is like, you know, we're, we're like working on a giant jigsaw puzzle and we've got mm -hmm. most of the pieces together so that we've got some confidence. We just don't know all of the little details. Right. Right. And we can only really look at, we can only measure a snapshot in time. Mm -hmm. So, but your models are allowing you to do more. Uh, so, uh, one thing you, we like to ask is what you do in your free time. I know that's uh, Scott's favorite question. So, um, sure. Yeah. yeah. Free time's great uh, when you can find it. Yeah. What, <laughs> um, what, are, what are you doing on, on your weekends and afternoons? So, I have my fingers on a lot of different projects and just work on them a little bit at the time. <laughs> so like I've been working on building a guitar since last February, just doing a tiny bit at a time, but I might be able to put the electronics in it soon. Yes. Um, cool. I play in a band with my wife. We're in a band called Mons Hire. She plays bass. I play guitar. We have three other people that are co-conspirators. Yep. And we're definitely going to play a song after your song request from Mons Hire. So definitely stay tuned for that. Yeah. And um, I guess the other uh, tradition that we like to ask uh, before we get to the song is, um, do you have any advice for anyone who might be out here listening? Uh, we kind of touched on it maybe a little bit just a minute ago, but um, what's your advice? Who is it for? So this is some advice for everyone. And uh, I didn't come up with it myself. I'm passing it along. So Catherine Hayhoe is the director of the Texas Climate or Texas Tech Climate Institute or Climate Center, something like that. Um, she gave a great a presentation summarizing the recent national climate assessment where she boiled down 2000 pages of science documents into a fully understandable 30 minute uh, lecture. Yeah, it was very great. I was there it was last year, if you guys remember, sometime in March, I, I do believe. Um, I don't remember the date. But, <laughs> Me either. <laughs> so, probably that. Uh, but one, the thing that she said at the end that I wanted to pass on is that the most important thing that you can do for climate change is to talk about climate change with people that you know. It doesn't mean that you have to be giving them answers about climate change. It just means have it as a topic of conversation. Definitely. And she did also mention trying to find a common ground with folks on climate because there's you know, many different perspectives, but finding that common ground, there's always something to talk about with climate change. Right. Whether you're thinking about national security and not wanting other countries to become unstable, whether you're thinking about the things that will change in your area, like getting 
more dramatic differences in winter and summer precipitation in the northwest or um, changing sea levels in on the on the globe but especially impacting places like the east coast where there's very flat ground going up to the ocean so um everyone is impacted by climate change in some way and everybody has things that they care about whether it's other people whether it's um business or national security interests or conservation it's all affected there's definitely something to talk about that's a that's a great um piece of advice there i think um the final tradition we have here is um you uh we go out in a song of your choice and uh explain what the song was and uh if you don't mind why you chose it yeah so the song i picked is hospital by art brute art brute's a band that seems to baffle a lot of my friends but i really like them um and he just sings in a sort of Lou Reed-ish, like speak singing way, <laughs> but it fits his poetry really well and it feels like really raw emotions in a way that other music hasn't done for me. This song is a new one from them. I wasn't sure that there was ever going to be another Art Brute album because it had been like six or seven years since they'd even toured, um, but they got back together and recorded this and it's a song about dusting yourself off and setting new goals. And I feel like that's something that's always applicable. That's great. Okay, so Hospital by Art Prout, and uh, thanks for coming in and uh, giving this interview, Daniel. Yeah, thanks for having me.